All right, and here we go officially. Wow, look, uh, yeah, Microsoft team meetings, I'm just not going to use that anymore. I think uh, Zoom's the way to go at this point. I, I've been using nothing but, and I'm not going to sing Zoom's praises because I know there's other things people use, but Microsoft products always seem to have gotchas every single time I've, I've, I've ever had anything to do with them when it comes to that stuff. So I'm always wary of them. Well, look, coming from a guy that came from Scientology, the whole gotcha <laughs> thing, that's that's kind of on the nose, don't you think? <laughs> 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 but hey, look, hey, thanks for coming on the podcast. It, it means a lot to me that you take some time out your schedule to talk to me. Um, I see your book there, A to Xenu. That's, I, I really like that. I, I love the title, A to Xenu. That's really cool. Um, Thank you. So how did the whole Scientology thing for you come about? Like, how did you get involved in it at all? Well, I was raised in it. So my parents oh, you were raised uh, in it. Yeah, I'm second gen. Uh, it's called second generation cult members are kids of cult members, right? People who are raised in it. And that can equally apply to third, fourth, fifth generation. We don't really count the generations. It's just to indicate that, you know, you were raised in it. And um, so being a non-convert, so to speak, you have a bit of a different experience because the cult reality is what's delivered to you as a young child. And this is how the world works, kid. And this is how this is what's normal. And so that's kind of how I was raised in Scientology as my parents got involved when I was about three or four years old. Um, they were divorced. My dad got involved. And then he got my mom involved. They got remarried. And we, um, you know, had a family in the world of Scientology growing up. <laughs> what was the upbringing in Scientology like? If you could compare it to just say a, a normal child's upbringing, is there much of a difference? Obviously teachings, there would be a difference, but is there- Oh, also absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, big differences. Um, Not huge differences. Like I grew up on a commune kind of differences. I went to public school. I had a regular childhood life as far as that goes. We I lived with my parents- in a home, we, you know, we rented an apartment, then we bought a house. Um, my my mom and dad had jobs. They were not billion-year contract signers who were off in the Sea Org. So experiences may vary for people. And for me, it was a fairly normal-looking childhood. Uh, the differences were in what I was taught. Uh, so I was taught that we are immortal spiritual beings, that L. Ron Hubbard is, is a, you know, um, a genius philosopher. That uh, that Scientology has all the answers that you are needing, and that life will will you know that all the problems of life or all the things that are crazy about the world or that drive us nuts about the world, all of those have solutions, and those solutions are contained in the works of L. Ron Hubbard. And all you need to do is study it and understand it, and apply it, and you will succeed. And this was kind of how it was introduced to me. This is how I thought about it growing up. Um, I still had regular schooling to do and all that kind of thing. So I was, you know, I was kind of more interested in being a kid. And my parents, thankfully, were not as militant as some Scientology parents get in applying Scientology to their kids, you know, because there's a, um, well, there's a lot to talk about with this, but you asked me, you asked me about me and my upbringing. So I'll just say that it looked pretty normal in terms of public school and that kind of thing. But all these ideas that were kind of implanted in my in my brain, you know, growing up were Scientology ideas. And so I looked at the world through a different lens than other people do. Um, the indoctrination was not 
you know, minimal. There was a lot there. And I was being given a lot of it as I grew up in terms of how the mind is constructed, how our brains work, how our thinking works, how we are spiritual entities first, and our bodies are just kind of like a set of clothes you wear. You go from life to life to life to life. You've had you know, thousands and thousands of lives that you've lived in the past and and you will in the future. And, you know, all of this kind of view of the world was my was my upbringing. So when I did finally uh, walk into a, you know, an official church of Scientology when I was 15 years old, I was really super primed to accept it, to believe that this was, you know, how the world is. And so the the whole recruitment process was a very, very easy thing to do on me because I was already there. You know, it wasn't like I was Joe Blow walking in off the street. Yeah, well, kids are very, uh, what's the word, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, indoctrinatable, I guess you could say. Well, there's um, bunches. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, anything, bunches. yeah, anything you teach them. It's, it's one of the reasons, like, look, I haven't got a, um, I don't have anything against religion in general. I just, I don't like the push against children. I think it's kind of one of those deals where you should show them the whole scope. Like, hey, here's Christianity, here's Catholicism, here's uh, Buddhism, here's Islam, here's Sikh, here's all of it. Here's Scientology, if you want to consider that a religion, which is debatable. Um, (laughs) Yes, it is. (laughs) And I will do that debate uh, for anybody who wants to do it. Yeah. I will say this. I'll say that you're I agree with you. I I have the viewpoint that that kids should be educated not indoctrinated and um and that, you know, and then that sounds really nice although of course there are things we have to indoctrinate our kids into. But the problem sort of defies its own solution in a way because the nature of religious belief is such that people become absolutely certain, absolutely sure that what they believe is the truth with a capital T. And so if so to them, from their point of view, they would actually be doing their children a disservice by not indoctrinating them. Mm. And that's the backwardsness of it, because of course, I don't share that point of view, and it doesn't sound like you do either. I think kids should develop critical thinking skills and be allowed to choose for themselves when it comes to major decisions like what's what faith do they want to subscribe to? Mm. But parents often, because of the nature of how religion operates on our brain, you know, parents don't think that way when it comes to stuff like that. And that's very unfortunate. Well, look, maybe I'm um, too much of a reader of Richard Dawkins, but um, <laughs> uh, look, he, look, he, maybe he's far too on the atheist scale. But like, look, I'm 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 not atheist myself. I just say I don't know. Sure. It, it's it's this it's really the simplest answer. But um, one thing he said is, you know, aren't you lucky to be born in the right one? You know what I mean? <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. Him and his selfish genes. Yeah, yeah. he um, he's a he's a funny one. Him and and he's you know pretty far over on the atheist band in terms of you know uh uh depth of belief in non-belief yeah i mean he really he's all the way down there right there is no god uh you're you're absolutely uh foolish for thinking that there is and 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 stop being so silly and i get it i totally get it because i've been there the and flying then, spaghetti monster yeah exactly and, and you go okay fine um you know i guess i would 
I would rather have someone who is in that position who, as a parent, says, look, you figure it out for yourself or I'll provide you with information and you can make your own decisions or something like that. I think that would be far healthier than pushing either extreme on kids one way or the other. You know, that's kind of how I approached at this point. Mm. Yeah, 100 percent. So growing up in Scientology, now you say you could debate anyone if it's a religion or not. Sure, sure. Um, now, when children are growing up in religions, they're obviously taught, hey, if you believe in our faith, you're going to go to heaven or whatever they believe in. And, you know, your friends are basically, they don't believe in this, they're going to hell kind of thing. In Scientology, were you kind of taught something similar as, hey, you kind of need to get the people you know over on our side here? Oh, in terms of proselytizing, that kind of thing? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's heavily encouraged in Scientology that you proselytize. And they don't call it proselytization. They call it dissemination. You're spreading seeds. You're disseminating, right? Oh, oh, God. Yeah, you're disseminating the knowledge of Scientology. They got to change that. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's the word they use. They're spreading their seed, right? And and it is, given Hubbard's, uh, you know, sexually predacious nature it is it is a funny word choice um but yes they heavily encourage that in fact they have a bonus commission system in place for such activities and there are people who have in the past and and even now are professional scientologists this is what they do they don't work for the organization but they work on getting people into the organization and doing services in Scientology, and then they get commissions for that. They make 10% or 15%, depending on what they're selling. So, um, so yeah, they're kind of big on that. Uh, it's not as big now of an activity as it used to be. Um, back in the 80s and 70s and 80s, they were, uh, you know, back in those days, they were really great guns on bringing in new people and stuff. Now they really seem to be focusing all of their attention you know, sort of on their existing people, because it's such a toxic word and such a toxic subject in in, in the world at large. People are know now they they're they're armed. They understand that Scientology is not not good. And uh, back in the day, that wasn't so well understood. So they were able to get a lot more people in a lot more easily. Which is a bit strange to me, because now look, I'm obviously not a Scientologist. I what I know of Scientology is taught to me by media. What I'm researched in South Park um okay <laughs> okay um so you have so, a little bit of knowledge so, so i have a little bit of knowledge like i, sure. I know i know xenu I, I know about the um you know when they're trying to bring you over you got that personality test uh that's right yeah that's right um i i do know a little bit um obviously not as much as you uh but we'll we'll, we'll get into that well sure um so <sighs> I wonder why not still try and recruit heavily. I mean, they got such names as look like Tom Cruise and John Travolta and at that recent. Yeah. Look, I probably wouldn't talk about that guy too much. If I was them, the guy that just got done for that, the rape allegations. Oh, Danny uh, Masterson. Yeah. He's yeah, in jail. Yeah. 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 Um, Prison. Uh, Leah Remini, she was actually talking about, well, she's convinced that Scientology were probably covering that up the whole time. Um, oh, it's is- not just her convinced of it. They testified to that in court. Wow. This was this is a legal fact. Scientology absolutely tried to cover up that those crimes. Wow. 
Oh yeah. yeah. Not just Leah mouthing off. We, we know this happened. We know exactly who did it. We know exactly how they did it. This was all legal testimony in Danny Masterson's rape trial. Now, these um, individuals that he went after, were they also other Scientology members or were they just people of the public? He both. Uh, Masterson was a sexual predator and he would drug and rape women. And so, uh, and this was his modus operandi. And he did it with non-Scientologists and he did it with Scientologists. And it just so happens that the the three women who had the charges brought against him were all former Scientologists. But there were two women who testified in one in one trial and one in the other because there were two trials. Um, there were two women who testified who would never had anything to do with Scientology, and yet he targeted and uh, assaulted them. Oh, well, he did the Bill Cosby. Um, he did. He Cosby yeah. all of them. Yeah. So your upbringing in Scientology, as you got older, was there ever a point during the 27 years you were there where you thought to yourself, hey, before the end? Like just say during the middle period where you were sort of a very strong Scientology member, was there ever a time where you had a thought to yourself, hey, this might actually be BS? And how do Scientology, if people are having that thought, counteract that ide- ideology? Okay. So yeah, you're talking about what we call in in psychology cognitive dissonance, right? Where you run into mutually exclusive facts. They can't both be true. Mm. And you got to resolve that. Right. Mm-hmm. When it comes to something like Scientology or something like a belief set or some or and it could also, you know, bleed over into the realm of action and stuff, too. You want to do this, but you got to do this. And, you know, you're kind of sitting there stuck in the middle. Right. Yeah. It's um, kind of like I want this thing, but I also really need this thing. Exactly. Yeah. And what do you do? How do you resolve yeah. this? Yeah. Um, so it, it creates noise. That's why it's called cognitive dissonance. It's noise in your head. It's like, ah, I got to figure this out. And um, and resolving that is a very interesting, you know, uh, proposition. And so when it comes to beliefs and things that are, you know, pretty subjective, pretty, you know, opinion based, um, it's not that hard because you if you need something to be true, you can make it true no matter what it is. That's that's kind of what our mind is capable of doing is it can invent reasons uh, with through you know, through our imagination. And so I don't recall a moment in all those years that I was there that I thought to myself, oh, this is all probably just bullshit, you know, ah, this is all just crap, right? There were times where there were things going on around me or there were circumstances I was involved in that were total bullshit, that were like, this is not okay. What's going on right now isn't right. Uh, Either somebody was being... um, you know, attacked or punished or disciplined in some fashion that didn't deserve it, or I was being attacked or punished or disciplined or talked to, given a what we used to call severe reality adjustments, SRAs, uh, basically somebody in your face giving you the what for, right? And sometimes at the top of their lungs, um, you know, beatings, things like that, um, you know, physical assaults against people, you know, when things like that are kind of going on, you're a little bit like, well, this is a bit rough. This shouldn't be this way. This isn't how it's supposed to be. So there were definitely times like that. But I always examine those or resolve that dissonance by telling myself, well, you know, it's this guy, or it's this girl, it's this woman, it's this person, it's it's the, the individual. individual, it's not the group, it's not you know, and even if it is the group, we can fix it. 
right? There's always a solution. There's always something that can be done about it. And you have, this is a great example of what we call thought terminating cliches or thought stopping cliches, these little expressions and mantras that you tell yourself to keep yourself going. You, it, it shuts down your thinking. If I say to myself in the face of somebody being physically assaulted in front of me, which happened, oh, well, he probably deserved it. Or, oh, well, she knows what she's doing in carrying out that discipline on that person. It's not my place, right? Kind of thing. These little things that we, you know, you tell yourself, these can act as thought-stopping cliches. They shut down any more thinking. You don't have to think about it anymore. It's just, oh, okay, that's what it is, and I can move on. And there's hundreds of those things in Scientology that you, that you learn, and you don't learn them because you're telling yourself, I don't want to think anymore. That's not how, you know, you think this sounds perfectly reasonable and logical, and oh, yeah, of course, right? He He deserved it, or, you know, something like that. Um, but it does serve to shut down thinking. And that happened to me all the time, right? As it does with any true believers, you have to shut down your thinking to maintain the belief, to hold on to the fact that this is true. I must somehow deny that this thing that I'm looking at is what it is. I have to call it something else. So I have to think about it in a different way. You know, battered wives do this 24 seven with, the, with their abusers, right? Um, you have to come up with excuses. You have to make up reasons why it's okay to stay. Stuff like that. That's all. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about here. And and, and that's what happened to me all the time while I was in that group. In a religion, you obviously have two sides. You got the the good side, which is like God, and if you want to take the Christianity point of view, like God, oh, sure. Jesus. And you got the other side, which is like the devil. Is there something like that in Scientology? So obviously, you got Zenu. Yeah. Is yeah, but Zenu is actually everybody misunderstands Zenu. So let's, but but I'm, this is a great question. Thanks for asking this because Zenu is not the big bad guy in Scientology. Hmm. What you saw in South Park is not strictly speaking the whole truth. It is true, and it is what Scientologists believe, but only after they achieve a certain level in Scientology called OT three, which takes years and years and hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars to get to. Not, not, it doesn't require millions to get to OT3, but it does require millions to get all the way to the top of the Scientology bridge. But it's going to invest, you're going to be investing at least three, four years of your life, minimum, often more. And you're going to be investing hundreds of thousands of dollars in the effort to get to the Xenu level. Only 5% of Scientologists make it that far. So wow. yes, Scientologists believe that, but only 5% of them. And they're all celebrities. <laughs> well, no, they're not all celebrities. My parents were OT3s. <laughs> wow. But um, it's called OT level three. And there are eight of those levels. So you got to get up to the levels and then you got to do a one and two, and then you do three. And that's when you learn all about Xenu. So I never got that far. 27 years. And I didn't get to OT3. Wow. So you can dedicate an awful lot of your time and attention and 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 life to Scientology and not make it that far. Just because you're in for a certain number of years or just because you've been around for a while and they trust you doesn't mean they pull you into a room one day and go, hey, check this out, right? That's not that's not how it works at all. You got to work your ass off to get to that level. 
And um, and so what is presented in answering your question as the binary, as the good, bad, is your own mind and you as a spiritual entity. You are basically good, mm. according to Scientology. You, your little spiritual self, the, the thing that is actually you is a good thing. It, it wants to do good. It doesn't, it wants to get along. It wants to, you know, play. It wants to have fun. It doesn't want to commit mass genocide and destroy people and, and ruin things. That's not the point of, of existence. Um, however, the accumulation of lifetime after lifetime after lifetime of trauma and death and destruction and violence and war and all this crap that people go through, life after life after life, millions of lives, millions, trillions. Like the, 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 it goes back in Scientology, they don't think the universe is a few billion years old. Hubbard dates the universe to like quadrillions of years. <laughs> okay. Like literally, that's the word he uses is he says the, the this universe that we're in, the the, the matter, energy, space time universe is four quadrillion years old. That's how long we've been kicking around in this universe. Do the scientists know this? <laughs> yeah, right. No, they they, they kind of, Hubbard kind of uh, didn't clue them in on it. So, um, so that's how long you've been kicking around. And it's not like Earth has been around all that time. The universe has, and it used to be a very different place. And Hubbard goes on and on and on about all kinds of crazy, fantastic stories and stuff like that. Where I'm trying to go with this is you, and this is, and let me be clear, I don't believe any of this. This is all horseshit, okay? I just, this is the Scientology theology. This is their, this is their mythology, is you've been kicking around for all these quadrillions of years. You've been accumulating all of this crap, and you carry it around with you. And the best example I can give, or the best analogy I can give is from a Christmas Carol. Remember that story of Christmas Carol by Dickens, and how Scrooge is visited. Oh, yeah. Okay, and yeah. how Scrooge is visited by Jacob Marley, yeah. who comes and he shows up, and he's got all these chains and all this crap that he's tied to that he's carrying around with him in his death and his afterlife. I remember now. Because those are all the sins he committed. Those are all the things he did, and he has to carry that around with him. Well, in Scientology, it's a similar concept. You're carrying around all of this charged trauma that actually has electrical charge, Hubbard says, and it's all contained in a storage facility called your mind. And it's in a part of your mind, Hubbard puts forward, called the reactive mind. And that mind stores all the incidents, all the events that you've encountered in your entire existence of pain and unconsciousness. So if something happened to you at any point that, that knocked you out, even for a couple seconds, even like hitting your hand with a hammer, you know, there's a moment of unconsciousness there. It, it, even all those little tiny moments of pain and unconsciousness and that's all stored in your reactive mind. And your reactive mind ends up being the bad guy because what it does is it uses that trauma to, and it feeds it to you to 
to disable you or or otherwise make you um, not able, not you know, not uh, not knowingly dealing with your life. The reactive mind is it's designed to keep you from hurting yourself again. Blah 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 blah. Right? It's all kind of convoluted and silly. But the bottom line is, you're the bad guy and the good guy at the same time, and it's all part of your own mind. And Scientology offers to erase that reactive mind, get rid of it. We're going to get rid of all that trauma and all that charge and all that awfulness that happened to you. We're going to erase that for you. And you still have the memories. Don't, 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 no, no, you're not going to be amnesic. You're just not going to have all that trauma anymore. It's going to be gone. And isn't that nice? Wouldn't it be nice to have a life with no trauma, with no past upsets, with no, you know, out of sorts emotions because of things that happened to you in the past? Wouldn't that be great? Yeah, that'd be great. Good. Sign right here, right? And here we go. And let's do some Dianetics and Scientology on you, and you're going to have a wonderful time. So that's kind of the goal of the whole thing, is to strip away all of that accumulated stress and trauma from your past and therefore make you empowered to more ably and effectively deal with your future. There's a few, there's a few yeah, ways I, I can go from here. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. well <laughs> one way I want to go is, Hey, well, there's, there's a place that PTSD people can sign up to and they didn't even know it. Jeez. <laughs> no, that's right. They actually target vets and they'll go after people who have trauma. That's sad. That's sad. Oh yeah. That's it's sad. very sad. That's yeah, very yeah. sad. Um, yeah. Now look, speaking of that whole trauma thing, now they say they can cure people of all this trauma. Trauma is going to yeah. continuously happen no matter what they do. Okay. Yeah, but the idea is that by removing all the past trauma, you sort of armor the person now in the present so that they are not as traumatized by events that happen to them going into the future. So how do they try and argue of like a parental death or a big loss? Because that's trauma, especially someone who's just came from a war and they've witnessed one of their best friends get their heads mm -hmm. blown off. There's mm -hmm. no matter what they do, they can't. To me, it they can't counteract that. That's something that's so heavily traumatic and imprinted in you. Like, look, yeah, you're still going to have the memory of it. But if you give us this money and, you know, hold on to these thetans or whatever, we're going to help. To me, it just sounds really ridiculous. I'm sorry if I'm, you know, shitting all over it here. But uh, please do. It is yeah. shit. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not at all asserting. You're asking me what it's about. I'm telling you what it's about. But I'm not at all trying to communicate or tell you or anybody in your audience that this is valid i'm, I'm going out of my way to say it's not yeah. this is this is destructive stuff scientology mm. will mess you up psychologically but the claims they're making is that it will help you and that it will remove this trauma or the effects of the trauma and of course that's just not true because that's not how trauma works and the way that they go about dealing with trauma is they have you go do a regression. You you go back, you relive it, you re-experience re it. And by going over it over and over and over again, this is Dianetics. You're supposed to erase all of that charge or that electrical force or trauma that's connected with those memories. And the, at the end of the day, this is about memories. And this is about memories that have impact. Mm. And Scientology promises to remove that emotional impact. They can't 
because they don't understand emotions and they don't understand trauma. But this is all Hubbard's bullshit theories. So um, that all kind of being said, what they really do is put you in a hypnotic trance and then, um, or there's a trance induction aspect to this. It's not full on, you know, you're sitting there with your eyes closed, you know, okay, tell me what to do. It's not that kind of hypnosis. It's, it's a little more subtle, but it's a kind of trance state where you're then regressed back into these traumatic episodes. And what really happens there is your trauma is just simply being re-triggered. And then you're going over and over and over it again, and you're indoctrinated to believe that by doing this, you are actually erasing the trauma when, in fact, you're actually most likely reinforcing it. For a very small percentage of people, um, studies show that uh, regression therapy of some kind can have some positive benefit, but we're talking about a small percentage of people. Scientology acts as though everybody responds this way, and they do not. So they might... um, you know, promise that they can do things for you with this, but they can't and they don't. And so, um, so it ends up making people think this is the horrible part is you're carrying around all this trauma. Then you have this process done to you, which you believe has now erased all that trauma. And yet now moving forward into the future, your body where the trauma is kind of stored is going to re trigger that trauma that you're going to be experiencing things in the future that are going to trigger you, but you can't let yourself think that's what's happening because it's all erased, right? So you have to, again, cognitive dissonance. You got to, oh, well, it can't be that I still have trauma. So it must be some other reason why I feel this way. And where do you go to find out the answer to that problem? Right back to the Church of Scientology. Oh, you just need more auditing. Let's sell you some more audit team to handle all this new stuff, right? And it's a continuing cycle. And this is how they keep people tethered to Scientology and keep getting money from them. And they have a step-by-step series of actions that they want you to take called the Bridge to Total Freedom. It's a step-by-step process. These OT levels I mentioned earlier, they're at the top of this bridge. You got a bunch of other stuff you got to do before you get to that. And it's thousands and thousands of dollars to pay for the hourly auditing, which I will only very loosely compare to counseling. It's not counseling, but it it's sort of there's a person there, you're there, you're talking to each other. There's an e-meter in the room. I mean, there's, a, there's all these accoutrements and crap that goes with it that makes it very much not counseling. But that's the best you know, comparison most people make to what auditing, Scientology auditing is. And I kind of went on a whole tangent there. I don't even know if I answered your question, but that's where my mind went in uh, responding to you there. No, that, <clears throat> that's fine. Um, this was a regression stage, you called it. Um, yeah, these regression therapy. Yeah, this yeah going regression back therapy. Over. Yeah. What is the suicide rate, I wonder, of... The individuals that they treat because if they're if you're saying there's only a small percentage of uh positive outcome from this yeah the- well here's here's what i mean by that is auditing the the auditing process is a process of hypnotic induction indoctrination and euphoria uh induction you you are trying to get a person and you're not done with the auditing session Each individual auditing session can go on for an hour to three to four to six hours. I mean, they can go on for quite a while sometimes. 
The end result of an auditing session is you in a euphoric state, in a, oh my God, I feel so great. And you're not really done until you get there. And through, again, through the processing of it, and it's a little complicated to have to explain the whole thing. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to just kind of gloss over a lot of details when I just say the goal is to get you to this euphoric state. It's not actually that hard to induce a euphoric state in somebody, by the way. So psilocybin, I mean. Oh, there's lots of ways you can do it. Now, (laughs) they don't use drugs to do it, but that's a very good example. That is a way to do it, is with drugs. Another way to do it is to go to a concert, right? Go to a music festival. Go to to things that bring you joy, that, that in a group setting even, really blow everybody's minds that's why people go to them is because it creates that experience have you ever been to a have you ever been to a museum and just saw something where you were like wow like a human did this yeah exactly that's what i'm talking about that feeling of euphoria or awe or some might some compare it because chemically it's very similar to the experience of falling in love that mm-hmm. giddy, great feeling you have that, ah, that's what I'm talking about. And the more that that can be approached or attained in Scientology, the more it works. The honeymoon stage. Yeah. See, that's, and that is a thing that they kind of get you a bit addicted to is that feeling. And they create that feeling. They induce that feeling through the process of auditing. And when you're in that state and then you're told you're primed, you're set up, through indoctrination, you're set up to believe that this feeling equates to you as a spiritual entity popping out of your head, being having an out-of-body experience. Oh, oh, Jesus. I feel so good right now. I feel so amazing. Your exterior, that's what they call it in Scientology, your exterior to your body, right? And this creates a disassociative state. And in psychology, that ain't a good thing, Mm. right? Because you have this false duality that you are something separate from your body and you are not. So it creates a psychological problem that we call disassociation. Yeah, (laughs) I was going to say, there's actually a condition, I'm pretty sure there's actually a condition in psychology where when something goes wrong within the brain where someone feels that they're kind of an intruder within themselves. Yeah. 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 That's, that's disassociation. That's where you're considering yourself as separate from yourself Mm. or from your body, right? There's a disassociation. Yeah. And um, that can have different trauma responses too, depending on how hard the disassociation event is hitting you and how often, Mm. and you know, you could induce a a disassociative disorder, even if you keep, keep at it long enough. But um, just because you have a disassociative event doesn't mean you have a disorder, Hmm. kind of separate things, right? You can have a full-blown split personality thing or amnesic thing or, you know, sort of something like that. That could be a permanent disorder, or you can have an event or incident in your life, like an auditing session, where it's induced for a temporary period of time. Hmm. You feel as though you're in the corner of the room looking at yourself. Well, you're not. So that's this kind of weird place your brain has gone to. And we call that, again, disassociation. Yeah, I read a book recently where uh, there, was a, there was a man who had dis, uh, disassociation. But the way he resolved it was he ended up getting 
uh, therapy and oddly enough, uh, certain types of glasses and the glasses actually helped some sort of neuroplasticity within his brain. And over months of time, he got to his front door one day and he said to himself, Oh, I get it. I am home now. Like he's everything just seemed, even though, even though he was at his house, it didn't feel like his house, even though he was with his wife, didn't feel like his wife, everything just didn't feel normal. Everything just felt foreign. But then one day everything just clicked and linked. And he said, I get it now. I am me. And it just, it, 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 broke, him it broke him down. And look, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a real, it's a really good book. I wish I could remember off the top of my head now. Um, well, that's exactly the kind of thing that people can have opposite to that is this, you know, is you induce a disassociative state in somebody where they feel not themselves and then you reward them for that. And tell them over and over again, socially, right, in social circles and settings, how great it is that that's happening to them, how that's a good thing, not a bad thing, and how it proves that they're a spiritual being, not a body. Mm. And that's what I mean about the indoctrination that follows, right, is, is you're primed with this, you're taught in Scientology that you are a spiritual entity. You are told this is what's going to happen to you in an auditing session. You're going to have a moment where you might feel like you're, you know, out of your body. We hope that happens. That's a good thing. That's called going exterior. We want that to happen. So through the action of indoctrination and positive social reinforcement, you are convinced that a disassociative state is a good place to be. And this is why I say it's psychologically damaging to people because it's not a good place to be. It's a horrible place to be. You are, you know, kind of perceptually deluding yourself. And we, and unfortunately, you know, Scientology is not the only place that this happens, but they really take advantage of these psychological mechanisms to misinterpret them for you so that you think as you're getting worse that you're actually getting better and you keep giving them money to keep making you worse. It is the most backwards, crazy operation once you understand it psychologically. But it took me a lot of years to get my wits around everything I'm telling you right now because the indoctrination in Scientology is very, very much set up to convince you that this is all very good for you. And again, I was raised with this. This isn't something I learned as an adult. This is stuff I thought was true from the time I was six years old. So it took a long time for me to not only overcome these ideas and beliefs, but then to learn and to kind of take them apart and learn what's really going on. And that's that's my effort now is to try to try to help under, help explain this to other people so they really get that auditing is not good. It's not even neutral. It's bad for you. And that's that sometimes is a, even for ex-Scientologists, sometimes that's a hard sell because, the, because people judge the goodness or badness of an experience on how good it makes them feel. And if they feel really good, this must be a good thing, right? <laughs> you know, and often... No, it doesn't work that way at all. Well, what does that say about a psychopath who feels good when they hurt people? Does that mean that spiritual entity is right for hurting people because he feels good when he does it? Like, what the hell is that? You know what I mean? In, it, from a Scientology context? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, those are called evil intentions. That's a that's a spiritual entity that has committed so much bad over so much time that it does a flip. Hubbard explains it in different terms with different concepts. 
he talks about how you can accumulate all that stress and trauma and it can change your personality in significant ways, right? You die and die and die and you kill a bunch of people along the way and you become a kind of a bad person. And you decide as a spiritual entity along the way that being a bad person is actually the way to be. I mean, when you've lived millions and millions of lives, you can expect a little variety, right? And you can expect maybe I'm going to take a path of of evil and see what that feels like for a little while. And then maybe I'll get back to good or whatever. There's so many different ways this could manifest. But the idea is that a Thetan, the spiritual entity in Scientology is called a Thetan. That's the word they use. They don't say ghost or soul or spirit. They they say Thetan. And you are not, you don't have a Thetan. You are a Thetan. Mm, my spiritual You're, being is a Thetan. You are a spiritual being. That is what you really are. And that non-corporeal entity, which doesn't have any existence in matter, energy, space, and time, it's not made up of energy, it's not ectoplasm, it's literally not of this universe. And so it's not definable in terms of matter, energy, space, and time. It's, it exists, it knows it exists, it runs and manages bodies and matter and all that kind of stuff. But it because of all of these accumulation of all of these millions of years of awful, it's kind of also forgotten that it's a spiritual entity. And it's so sucked into this sort of cycle of life after life after life after life that it's sort of operating like a prisoner. It's sort of caught up in this wheel. And this is very, very... Um, analogous to the Buddhist concept of, you know, this sort of endless cycle or the Hindu concept of, of being caught in this. Yeah. yeah. And Hubbard says, you got to break out of that cycle. And Scientology is the only thing that's going to give you the knowledge and the um, ability to break out of that prison cycle. And that's why just telling you about this, just showing you or telling you, Hey man, you're a Thetan. And you need to stop going when you die. Don't go get another body. Go do something else. That doesn't work, right? It does. It's not that simple. Uh, you've accumulated a lot of crap over all the millennia you've been around, and you can't just get rid of it yourself. You're going to need some help, and that's what Scientology is pretending to offer you as a helping hand. So um, I forgot how we got on all that, but that's oh yeah, the evil people. So so through the time of all of this, you know, time that you've been bumping around, being victimized and victimizing other people. Some people sort of do this flip, some Thetans do, and they start, you know, and they just become concentrated evil. And the same procedures of auditing will de-evil them. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hubbard says that he had auditing techniques for all this stuff. And there was this very specific auditing technique. To There were a couple of them, in fact, that were specifically designed to deal with people's evil intentions or evil purposes, right? Ideas that they're carrying around, that it's a good idea to kill people, hurt people, destroy people, etc. And if you deal with those ideas and you and you erase them and get rid of them, you can turn an evil person into a good person again. How now? How would they deal with someone that's like a, a psychopath, someone who's just 
brutalized. Well, they would want that person out because Scientology is not really set up to deal with psychopaths and they don't. And they say that that's not what they exist for. While, while Hubbard has developed these techniques, they're not trying to go empty the mental institutions or deal with all the criminals of the world. Scientology's goal, as it's stated, is to make the able more able, oh, not to work on all the disabled. Right. Hubbard actually explains the logic of this in his materials. He says, look, we can focus all our attention on the people who can't pay us, aren't living a good life, aren't contributing to society. And we can focus all our efforts on the on those awful people and get a little bit of gain in handling or dealing with them. Or we could take this much larger group of people over here who are the ones who are actually making society work and operate and go, the teachers, the, the policemen, the, the workers, the office people, the mothers, the fathers, all the people, all the good people. Let's focus on them and make them more able so that we take something that's already working and we make it work better rather than focusing on all the broken pieces and the pieces that are messing everything up. Which one should we work on first? And this is the logic of his argument. And, you know, it holds water to a certain degree if you're looking at it as though Scientology works, but Scientology doesn't work. And so obviously the reason they're not doing that work of handling all the psychos and insane people is because they can't, because they don't know how to deal with those people. So Hubbard just came up with this bullshit argument to say this is why we're focusing on all the rational people. <laughs> right? so. doesn't, doesn't that doesn't that kind of take their argument of we are a religion and kind of make it bullshit? Because a religion is not uh, meant to be about accepting. Like, <clears throat> I seem to be using Christianity a lot here, but I'm going to use it again. Sure. So yeah. you know, it, it doesn't matter what sin you've committed. We'll bring you in. We'll will help you do you just gotta you know forgive yourself god will forgive you repent stuff like that kind of mm -hmm. thing you don't have to give us money if you don't want to you know you can just sit here with isn't that really what a religion's meant to be not you know hey come here if you're already financially stable and emotionally stable and <laughs> well well yes and no i mean Again, um, Hubbard, I, I just explained why Hubbard was sort of just sort of making this good argument for a bad reason. Yeah, but I, I'm talking um, Scientology in general. I know what Aaron Hubbard uh, said, as you described, um, but yeah. in general, but, wouldn't it make them look better if they say, hey, we're going to help the less fortunate now? Yes, yes, and no, right? Um, I mean, not good. I mean, it's not going to help them i mean religion yeah see religion's a funny thing right tax exemption is based on the factor or, or the idea or the assumption that you know these are charitable works or public you know these are these are organizations that work for the public benefit um should they be working for the public benefit yes they should does that mean a religion isn't a religion if it's not emptying the insane asylums well not really right i mean it's there isn't a mandated well if you don't do this Right. And you do do this. I mean, you know, I don't know. I can only go so far down that road. Right. Um, We're not even helping, not even emptying the insane asylum. I'm even just going to a homeless shelter, man. Like, oh, totally, totally, totally. And Scientology gets shit for that all the time. Religion in general, absolutely positively should be, by definition, 
uh, religious organizations should be working for the public benefit. Uh, that, that's to, to me, that's that's very uh, obvious. Um, and again, the basis for their tax exemption in most countries. I would like to see, personally, I'd like to see more effort being made to prove for them to prove that they are operating for the public benefit as opposed to just saying that they are. Mm. I think it's very easy to say they are, right? In America, for example, it's very, very lax. I mean, you you open up any church, any kind of Christian church of any kind, you're automatically tax exempt. You don't have to go apply for it. You've got it. Mm. I think that's silly. I think that's very silly, right? I think there should be um, more guardrails on this road, you know? And, and right now it's kind of this wide open thing. So I'll, I'll kind of go as that far with with responding to your question on that, right? Is I think that they get away with too much, um, but I don't. But I'd be I, I'd be careful, or I feel a little trepidatious about having to mandate. Well, if it doesn't look like a charitable organization to me, then it must not be a religion or something. Because you know it's a very wide term, and I and I, you know what I mean, and I I wouldn't want to make too broad of a generality about it, I guess. Mm. Um, with Scientology, I know they've been pretty synonymous when it comes to splitting up families purely because, you know, mm. if someone's not a Scientologist and someone is a Scientologist, you know, they say you can't have interaction with that person. How was that for you in your upbringing? Well, specifically, you can, to, to clarify, it, it is not that you must not or cannot communicate with people who are not Scientologists. You are free to do that. There's no restrictions on a Scientologist talking to a non-Scientologist or even being married to a non-Scientologist. Um, but it's a cult. Now, let's remember it's a cult. And because it's a cult, they're going to put a lot of emphasis on sticking with your own, on staying in the group, on yeah. us versus them thinking. And so non-Scientologists are often regarded with a certain degree of trepidation or suspicion or compassion and understanding of, oh, they're not quite yet up to where we're at. There's a lot of arrogance and conceit in Scientology. And so because I have this wisdom of L. Ron Hubbard and because I'm, you know, one of the ones who is here partaking in Scientology, I'm one of the better people in the world, right? This is cult 101. Every cult thinks this way. And Scientology is no exception. Um, and there's a lot of language and a lot of wording that Hubbard uses to kind of build this attitude. It's a created thing in Scientology. It's not just a, a, a an accident. So, so there's a certain degree of uh, they even have a word for it. I'm 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 loath to use it anymore because I realize it's a racial slur now. And I and I didn't used to know that. But there's a term. Um, the word is wog. W-O-G. Uh, in Australia, that word gets thrown around like it's milk. <laughs> okay. Okay. And in some parts I mean, of the look, world, it's but look, very in, expensive. But right? look, in Australia, the word cunt is yeah. very just, I mean, like, look, I just said it now. A lot of people in America probably just cringed. But in Australia, you know, we call our friends that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Different words, different meanings, different places. Yeah. yeah. In the Scientology yeah. world, any, anyone who is not a Scientologist already, is a wog. Mm -hmm. And if you're a wog, there's certain things about you that Scientologists will simply assume. One, you're kind of dumb. 
Two, you have no idea what's really going on. Your eyes are completely shut to the reality of what the real world is versus the world that's been painted for you that you're living, that you think you're living in. It's a little matrixy. It's a little matrix-like, this attitude. And wogs are unaware. They are, they're, they're people whose eyes have not yet been opened. You can have different attitudes about that, right? You can think of them as stupid people or whatever, or you can be compassionate. Oh, those poor wogs, those poor people, right? And we have to help them and we have to turn them into Scientologists. And then one of the other expressions in Scientology is everybody is already a Scientologist. They just don't know it yet. Oh, God. Right? <laughs> so we have to convince them. We have to make them into Scientologists, right? Through that dissemination. Yeah. And so, you know, when you disseminate to a WOG, you are trying to turn them into a Scientologist. Um, and there's a whole little procedure to do that that Hubbard lays out. There's four steps, you know, and, and blah, blah, blah. And if you do them, then, you know, you'll make a person into a Scientologist. Um, but it does take some skill and some ability. Not just anybody can do it. So um, anyway, so that's all kind of part of the picture there. And that's how they think about non-Scientologists. So, um, so that's more the attitude. Now, where it becomes the shunning, where the shunning comes in, where the disconnection comes in, where you cannot talk to that person anymore, that comes in if you're dealing with somebody who is hostile or antagonistic to Scientology. Right. Oh, going down to the church, huh? Oh, you're gonna do your classes tonight? Oh, how cute, right? <laughs> like somebody like that. Get the fuck out of here, right? Like shut the fuck up, right? That's gonna yeah. be a very, you know, kind of kind of approach. But what if it's a family member, right? What if it's a friend? What if it's somebody you're in partner with a, a business, right? Like somebody who's actually a valuable relationship to you, and now. They're giving you a bunch of crap about Scientology. Did you see Scientology? Didn't you watch Scientology in the aftermath? What the hell's wrong with you? What are you going down to the Church of Scientology for, you moron? Like if somebody was talking to you like that, right? And of course, they're only coming from a place of caring. Hmm. They're talking to you in a hostile manner. It's you're not going to appreciate it. But they're they're not trying to do you in. They're not trying to destroy you. But that's what Scientology will say. Right. They'll say, oh, that guy has evil intentions toward you. That guy's trying to stop you. That guy who's bad mouthing your brother, your mother, right? They're whoever it is, they're bad mouthing Scientology because they recognize that it's going to make you better. And that, that somehow they're trying to get one over on you or they're trying to control you or they, they don't want you to do better in your life. This is standard, typical cult, how to deal with people who don't like the cult is you make the person not like them. Right. You, you got you to gotta turn the tables on those bad guys. And so one of the ways that you'll be told to deal with this is you got to go handle that person as a Scientologist. Here, here I am. I'm a Scientologist. I'm a new Scientologist. And my mom is giving me a bunch of shit about it, you know, and telling me I should go watch Leah Remini and telling me I'm wasting my money. And I go down to the church and I'm trying to do my classwork or I'm trying to do my auditing. And I talk about, and I bring up my mom one day, right? Oh, my mom, and she's giving me all this shit. And they're going to go, oh, she is? Oh, well, you need to come over here and talk to our ethics officer. That's the name of the job of the guy you're going to talk to now. 
is the ethics officer. And he's going to talk to you about your ethics, your good, bad, right, wrong. How, how do you make your decisions in your life about what's good and bad and right and wrong? That's what ethics is. And there's a person whose job it is to sit down with you and deal with your ethics. Isn't that also subjective? It's, all, it's completely subjective. All of this is. Mm. So they're going to now paint out your mother or your friend or whoever this anti-Scientology person is. That ethics officer is going to sit you down and go over L. Ron Hubbard references and issues and writings with you and convince you that that person doesn't, isn't good for you, isn't a good element in your life. And you, you need to either handle that person so they stop giving you all this shit or you need to disconnect from them. It's going to be one or the other. And if you can't handle them, if they, if they won't stop, you're going to have to disconnect from them. And that's it. That's the end of the story, right? That's as far as it goes. And the handle step might take a little while. You know, you might go home to your mom. Oh, mom, stop giving me all this shit about Scientology. You don't know what the hell you're talking about. And it's, and it's something I want to do. So let me just do it, okay? Right? Like that might be an example of a handling. And mom might go, okay, fine. I won't say anything more about it. Good. Handled. Now I don't have to hear shit from my mom anymore about Scientology. Now it's handled. I don't have to now disconnect because my mom's not giving me any more shit about it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Was there? Right? On the other hand, if mom says, fuck you, you have no idea what you're talking about, it's going to end up being Splitsville. Was there any of that for you being a second generation when you were leaving? Mm -hmm. not, when, not when I was leaving, because here's what happened is my parents got out before I did. Wow. Yeah. So it was towards yeah. you. for the. Okay. Wow. Yeah. There were efforts to get me to disconnect from my mom because I was in uh, regular communication with her or semi-regular communication with her. And I always resisted it. I was always like, no, nope, no, nope, she's not suppressive. She's not a bad person. Because they'll label you, right? In, in that example I gave you, the mom would be called a suppressive or she's acting suppressively. This is the word they use. She's trying to suppress you. She's trying to keep you down. You're trying to do Scientology to become a better person. She's trying to keep you down. She's suppressing you, right? Um. And if it goes on long enough, she becomes a full-blown suppressive person, right? And you can't be connected to a suppressive person if you're in Scientology. Suppressives are the bad guys. Me, Chris Shelton, what I do day in and day out, making a YouTube channel, posting videos about Scientology, I am a full-blown suppressive person to the church Scientology. How, if you're refusing to disconnect from your mother obviously mm. how how do they deal with someone like that they kick you out just straight up they just kick you yep. out if you refuse to sever a connection with a suppressive person you yourself are suppressive period even if you yeah. have nothing yeah. against what they're teaching in terms of belief yeah. faith factors i guess no no it's it's one or the other it's our way or the highway this is again this is cult 101 right all cults are like this you conform or you're out. And on this point, it's not negotiable. Now, they will work with you to try to do this handling. And sometimes those handling steps can take weeks, months to do. 
right? You're working the mom over. You're working her over. You're trying to show her L. Ron Hubbard. You're, you're sitting her down and going, look, this is really important to me. I really need you to stop giving me all this shit, right? And, um, or whatever, however you go about dealing with it, right? If your boss is giving you a bunch of shit at your work, you know, maybe you need to quit. Maybe you go to get, get another job, right? Something like that. Like there's ways that you can deal with this that are not as severe as, okay, you're out of here, right? But if you try all that, it's still not working and it's not going away, you're going to have a choice to make as a Scientologist. It's, you know, you, if you want to keep doing Scientology, you can't have this person in your life. It's your choice. You figure it out. But this is what we're going to tell you, right? From the church's point of view, they don't mess around with that. How did you deal with it in the beginning when the disconnection, I guess, was happening between you and your parents? Well, see, it never did go to disconnection because I never let it get that far. Okay. Because I was I was sort of navigating the middle waters of it. And so I wasn't around my parents. This is at a point where I was a grown adult. I was in the C organization. So I was in Los Angeles at the big blue buildings. And that's where I lived and worked and breathed and 24-7. That was my life, was working and living there. And my mom was up in Northern California. And she and I would talk by phone from time to time. And she was not giving me shit about Scientology. She was being extra careful to not give me shit about Scientology. But she knew but she knew. I mean, and she she was taking great pains to not be a suppressive, to not act like that, to give me a reason to disconnect. Because she knew if she did, that could be a problem. That could be a problem for me. And in my cult mindset, I would have disconnected from her, right? So she didn't put any of that crap on my on my plate. She just talked to me as me. And we had a good relationship. And that was why I was able to defend it and say, she's not giving me any shit about Scientology. I'm not disconnecting from my mom. You know, screw you guys, right? And that was, and and there was no, and it didn't go any further than that. But, you know, that was, I was being incredibly um, crafty and she was too, right? Because she was not giving me any reason to have to disconnect from her. And so I didn't. Now, what is the Sea Org? I've heard this term so many times. Oh, yeah, sea organization. So um, basically, it's like the Vatican of the of Scientology. Some people don't appreciate that example, but I think it fits perfectly. it's 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 the core group of a few thousand people who make up the the sort of elite of the Church of Scientology. They're the ones who actually work twenty four seven to keep Scientology going. They manage the Scientology churches. They they produce all of the audiovisual promotional materials or films or videos or any of that. That's the Sea Org doing that. They are they live in a, um, a sort of a semi-military environment. It's modeled after the Navy. There's ranks. There's ratings. There's yes sir, no sir, how high sir. There's a boot camp process. It's called the Estates Project Force usually takes a few weeks or a couple months to get through. And then you're a Sea Org member, right? And you know how to say yes sir, no sir, how high sir. And, <laughs> and it's a very regimented kind of activity. Um, and it's very schedule intensive. It is uh, an incredibly high pressure environment. I worked in the Sea Org for 17 years. In order to be a Sea Org member, that's where you might anybody, anybody in the audience might have heard about a billion year 
contract that Scientologists sign. Yes, I've heard of this. That's the Sea Org. Nobody's signing any billion-year contracts to go in and see Xenu. Nobody's signing billion-year contracts to, to go do Scientology services. It's if you want to be part of this elite core group that dedicates their entire life to Scientology. That's what the Sea Org is. And so that's why I, I, I kind of make it a comparison to the, to the Vatican because they're full-time. It's not like people in the Vatican go home at five o'clock and watch TV. You know, they're, they're doing Vatican stuff all the time. That's yeah. their life. That's the Sea Org. We did, it's not a nine-to-five job. It's 24 fucking seven, right? You are doing nothing but working on Scientology all the time. And um, it's a pretty intense existence. So what goes into the day-to-day life of a Sea Org from the moment you wake up till you go to bed? What's happening? Well, it depends. I mean, lots of different things because there's only about 20 different Sea Org organizations, right, that you can work in. And so your day could be uh, getting up in the morning and making all the food for the crew and you're the galley cook. And your job all day, seven days a week, is to go cook food in the galley, right? Or you could be an engineer and you're on you know, HVAC all day and you're installing air conditionings and fixing them and stuff like that on the Sea Org bases, right? It could be that kind of work. Or you're a course room supervisor. You're actually delivering Scientology to people at a high level and you're doing it in the classrooms. I did this for a while where you're actually running kind of like a teacher role, except it's more of a supervisory position because Scientology is done on a self-study basis you everybody in the classroom is kind of studying their own classwork and you're supervising them and making sure they understand their materials so it could be very it's a varied experience but it's a um there's a lot of pressure to produce there's a lot of quotas there's a lot of uh, demand for money even out of any of these jobs you're on the phones talking to scientologists and calling them for a bit each day and trying to make get, get them to buy books or buy services or whatever. Um, it's a, it, you know, my day started around, I don't know, 745 or so, get up, you know, go to muster. The, the, the commonalities of this existence are you always have a morning muster. Everybody has to gather up and account for everybody and get the day started. There's oh, a usually... Is, uh-huh. is, is, is muster like a, a prayer? What, what is that? No, no, it's lining up in ranks and rows, and okay. it, we're all here. It's accounted for, right? It's it's literally taking a roll call of the people who are supposed to be there. Because if anybody's sleeping in, you got to go roust them, you know, and stuff like that. And that's not that that kind of thing's not tolerated. You're supposed to be at muster on time, <laughs> and um, you know, stuff like that, right? So it's a, like I said, it's a regimented existence. So you show up for muster, you get accounted for. Um, there's usually a little briefing or something. Here's what we're going to do today, or here's what's happening today or whatever. And uh, then you get off and you usually have got, um, usually in the morning, although sometimes it's at night, it depends on the job. Um, there's a study slot where you study Scientology. And that's maybe studying how to do your job if you haven't learned that yet. Or it's just studying Scientology books and materials and lectures and stuff like that. That's like two and a half hours of your day. And then the rest of the day is on production. You get a half hour for lunch. You get a half hour for dinner. And the rest of the day, you're flat out, right? There's not, there's no breaks in the middle of the afternoon or anything. And you're not going home at five. You're working until about 11, 1130, sometimes one or two or three. Depends on yes. what's going on. 
right? But I there were there was uh there were periods of time where I was getting like, you know, two or three hours sleep a night for weeks on end, stuff like that. It's an intense schedule. Wow. Uh, and so you have about three or four musters every day where you're everybody's kind of accounting for your for everybody and um briefings and stuff but it but it's very it's very job specific as to what a person's day is like in the sea org it's it's hard to pin down exactly you know what i mean because there's so many different things going on there Mm. i would actually like to go back to what i was talking about something earlier on in our conversation about the good and evil thing now where i was trying to get at with that before is obviously okay we're a thetan we're a soul thetan a thetan sorry um, is there a creator of the Thetan? Is there a, you know, how Christianity, Islam, like that, that there's always a creator to something. Is there a creator in this aspect? Nope. It's just us. And now, how, do, how do they, ex, how, how would they explain where, look, the regression, you know, something must have came from something, you know? Oh yeah, no, no, that doesn't, yeah. no, no. Nobody's going there in Scientology. Um, four quadrillion years ago, we all showed up here. What happened before that? Who the fuck knows? Did I actually there's, say there's we no don't answer. know? Yeah, there's no answer. It's not addressed anywhere. That At least nothing in, that I saw. Um, there's no God figure. Here's the thing in Scientology. I guess I haven't um, really broken this down as far as a Thetan goes, but a Thetan is a God. Okay. Fair, I mentioned earlier that a Thetan creates matter. A Thetan is po- it's possible for a Thetan to create matter, energy, space, and time at will. Mm. Apparently, according to L. Ron Hubbard, you and me and thee are doing it all the time. We've just forgotten that we're doing it and we forgot how we're doing it. And by this, I mean everything around you Australia, United States, everything in between, all this universe. We as Thetans are mutually, collectively creating all of this. It's not a simulation generated by a computer. Ultimately, in an ultimate sense, and I mean in an ultimate sense, Scientologists don't walk around thinking they can put their hand through a wall or something. It's not that loosey-goosey. But if, but ultimately speaking, Scientologists believe, and they're told by L. Ron Hubbard, that this physical universe is basically like a group illusion we're all mutually creating together. God didn't create this. We did. Okay. And whatever God is, whatever big Thetan, as Hubbard calls it, so the consciousness big, is an illusion, basically. Not consciousness, no. Existence. Okay. This existence. Yeah. Consciousness is the only thing that's real. Your existence, your thoughts, your ideas, your attitudes, and, and the way you deal with the world, that's the only real thing there is. Conscious because experience. you as a Thetan are mm-hmm. real. But this isn't. Yeah, that's what I was kind of getting at. So, yeah. So, you know this 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 laptop this microphone that i have my, my phone all, all all of that it's the the color of it even it it's yep. it's it's perception it's not real correct yeah okay. and this is the theory this is the underlying principle as to how it is that you can erase trauma 
trauma is energy. It's energy you're carrying around with you that you've attached to mental image pictures, which they are associated with. This is in Scientology. I'm, again, this is bullshit. Okay. I'm, I don't believe this stuff. I'm just explaining Scientology. <laughs> yeah. I, I have to say that sometimes because people, you know, get a little confused. So in Scientology, you are generating mental image pictures at the rate of 72 of them or 76 of them every second. Right? You're taking pictures, you're taking Polaroid pictures of the universe you live in from your perspective. And they're not two-dimensional pictures, they're three-dimensional pictures that you're storing in your mind. And those pictures are sheets of energy that you as a Thetan are creating. And in the auditing process, through the regression process or through any other way that auditing works, because there's different methods of auditing, you're literally erasing that energy. You're dissipating. You're making it gone. It's vanished. And that's where the trauma supposedly is going, is you're literally erasing it out of existence. Hmm. And the only reason you can do that is because you can create matter, energy, space, and time, and you can destroy it at will. Does that all make sense? Yeah, it- it blows it's my mind. Wild, it's a, it? Yeah, it really, yeah. it's crazy. It's it is. It puts you. It puts you in godhood. It puts you in a position of ultimate power over anything you see or experience. You know what? But if, if, but, if this... but 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 let me let me say this one last thing. You gotta get to the very top of the Scientology bridge before you're actually going to be able to realize your full potential in this way. Right now, you can't just erase this canic. You know, I can't just erase it. I can't make it go away. But if I was at the top of the bridge, if I was the ultimate product of Scientology, I could. It's gone, right? Like that's that's the power Scientology ultimately is promising to its members. You know what? If if Aaron Hubbard decided to make this a yeah, I know he was a failed writer. So maybe if he made this as an actual book, it probably would have, like, you know, not a, not a, not a fact one, but a fictional one. It probably would have sold pretty well. <laughs> well, you know, I gotta say, um, I'm not here to defend Hubbard, but I don't. I, I would not have called him a failed writer. He he was quite a successful writer, actually. I heard um, I heard most of his books didn't do that well. No, he was, he was, he's, he's in there. His name is part of the uh, list of people who are golden age of Pulp Fiction writers. And when he wrote Battlefield Earth in 1980, it was, it was a legit bestseller. And when he wrote the Mission Earth series, they sold, I mean, he, he sold books. I don't know what to say. You know I mean? Again, I'm not Hubbard's apologist. I hate that fucking guy, but you know, I got to correct the record when I, when I hear it, cause I'm, I'm, the truth is important to me. So he wasn't really a failed writer, failed husband, failed father, failed human being. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So don't get me wrong at all. I am, I am not the, that guy's defender, you know, but I do like to talk about him as accurately as I can. Isn't it crazy that a science fiction writer came out with some sort of Bible that now thousands of people believe is true. Mm -hmm. It is to me. That is insane. Well, okay. I mean, I've made this argument recently, so let me make it again. Um, 
That's like Stephen King writing a book right now. <laughs> yeah, except that it's not exactly the same, and here's why. You've heard of Robert Heinlein? No. Arthur C. Clarke? That name sounds familiar. Ray Bradbury? No. Okay. There were writers during the golden age of science fiction, the original guys who came up with science fiction. That right? middle, the, really, the second name sounded really familiar. Yeah. Um, there are names in this list who are, and other names I haven't named even, right, who are legit rocket scientists, who are legit astro astronomical you know astronomers or 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 physicists or people mm. who have who have letters after their name who are legit educated mo a lot of the people i want i won't go out on a limb and say most but i will say that during the golden age of science fiction a lot of the science fiction that was produced was produced by people who were fully professional in some scientific field they were also writers and they wrote, and they wrote fantasy science fiction stories. 2001 A Space Oddity, that's Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, Stranger in a Strange Land, um, Starship Troopers. So, I mean, there's a long list from Robert Heinlein, who was a rocket engineer. So it wasn't uncommon in the 40s and 50s and 60s to see people who had a job as a legit scientist or something who were also writing and right, who wrote stories. So just because you were somebody who wrote stories didn't make you somebody who was suddenly, oh, wait a minute, what do you mean you're writing nonfiction too? That wasn't a that wasn't a thing when Hubbard first came up this way. So when he proposed Dianetics, he proposed it in 1950 as a science. It was not a religion. Dianetics was proposed as the, the, the cover of the book, Dianetics. It's Dianetics, the modern science of mental health. That wasn't that crazy to be coming out of a guy who wrote stories. Nobody went, wait a minute. <laughs> because a lot of people did that. And that's the only point I'm making. It doesn't give Hubbard any legitimacy because Hubbard wasn't legitimate. He didn't know the first goddamn thing about science. But I'm trying to point out that sort of culturally and socially at the time, he was able to ride those sort of credentialed coattails of the Robert Heinleins and Arthur C. Clarks and, and Ray Bradbury's of the world because he presented himself as a scientist. And so people took him at his word. They shouldn't have, but they did. Mm. That's how Dianetics got started. And it wasn't for a couple of years before it morphed over into Scientology and became a religion. Well, to even take that argument, so to take a, a writer and a scientist of today, they, they haven't written any science fiction, but you could go um, Stephen Hawking or Neil deGrasse Tyson or Michio Kaku mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. any of these top-grade scientists and then, and then take something they've said and make that a religion. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's It's... It's the it same, but, but, but the thing is, like, no one would believe them. It's amazing to no, no one. <laughs> I think that speaks more to the jaded spirit of our internet age <laughs> than it does to, to the credentials of somebody going off in that direction. 
I'm just telling you, if you do a little bit of research, you're going to find a lot of people have gone from legit to not so legit mm. and sort of use those credentials to to transfer from one to the other. And Hubbard was just another one of those guys, right? I mean, he was a vet. He was a, he presented himself as a successful combat veteran and officer of the Navy. Was he? He wasn't. No, he wasn't. He was an officer. He was not a combat vet. And he didn't suffer war wounds. I mean, the guy was such a pathological liar, right? So it feels odd for me to try to offer these, you know, sort of broader explanations of his behavior and go, well, you know, because he's such an asshole that, and I'm I'm just kind of letting my hair down here on this, right? But it's just, the guy is such a jerk that, you know, I don't want to come off like I'm defending him, but I'm always that guy who's trying to provide a larger context for stuff too. So that's the you see me talk about this you're you're not defending him as we were talking about before you know with the whole child indoctrination you're trying to give all the facts that's all that's all it's all you're doing you're not defending anything here you're you're just saying no this is no this guy is an asshole but what you said here wasn't true this is true that's all yeah 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 Yeah, because i because it because you got to understand as scientologists we loved hubbard Mm. it wasn't nobody looked at hubbard in Scientology and went, ah, this guy, ah, this guy, ah, wow, he's so clever, right? Nobody does that. When you're in Scientology, you have accepted the reactive mind is real. You are a Thetan. These are philosophical discoveries of importance and that and that you are on a path to spiritual enlightenment and awareness and ability where you're going to fucking make Coke cans disappear. Mm-hmm. Like, this is the real shit as far as you're concerned. So I'm all in. And somebody comes along and says, well, you know, he was a science fiction writer. Go fuck yourself. You know, it's being like that kind of a thing. It'd be like, what are you telling me that for? Right. What? So he's incapable of finding truth then? Is that what you're saying? Right. Cause, and it would be a fallacious argument because mm. of course the science fiction writer is just as capable of doing research and discovery as anybody else. It just so happens L. Ron Hubbard wasn't that guy. He did make it all up and, you know, screw him for doing that. And plus, I think when he created Scientology, because Scientology, that was created in the 50s. Was yeah. it in the 50s? Yeah. So that was during a time where, look, the internet wasn't around. There wasn't really much around. You could create probably any argument out of anything, whereas most modern cults are created out of religions that already exist. And then they say they're the prophets of these religions. Like, I've got a... um. I've got a individual eventually coming on my podcast who was, uh, she was lucky brought up in the cult. Have you heard of the cult, uh, the God, uh, ch- uh, children of God? Oh yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I've got someone coming on from that, which was just reading about that is insane. It was obviously during her time, just an insane sex cult. Um, yeah. Uh, the child abuse in children of God is rampant and horrifying in oh i've 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 read probably half of her book so far and i'm I'm struggling to get through it just listening yeah it's hard listening to it it's crazy yeah um and you were talking about before alron hubbard and his sexual ideology ideological beliefs um i don't know if scientology was created similarly in a way to satisfy his sexual urges would you have no no it wasn't but it's it's noteworthy in that respect 
Mm. Often, often, and I've and I've been studying this stuff for years now, right? Um, often cult leaders will use their position for sexual advantage as well as for power and finance, uh, money, right? They will yep. they lord their power over people, and usually, and the motivations for this are sex, money, influence, and power, right? I mean, those are the those are the things that that drive cult yeah, leaders but- to be cult leaders or true belief which could be the fourth one, which is really scary. Um, Hubbard didn't, Hubbard was a serial philanderer. Hubbard cheated on all his wives. Hubbard was a, was a wife beater. He was a wife abuser. We do not know. I cannot sit here and say that there is any evidence that he was a child abuser, but he was an absentee father and he was a negligent father. And he was an uncaring, absent father, right? Which could be argued uh, as mental abuse. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He was an abusive man uh, mm-hmm. it, with all of his social relationships. There were no relationships Hubbard ever had that were healthy relationships. Let's be crystal clear about that. He was always getting one over on people. And he came at life from the viewpoint that you had to get one over on them before they got one over on you. That was absolutely how he approached relationships. Wow. So he, um, and he wrote about this and he talked about this. Um, so not in a very self-reflective understanding way. It's mm. just, I'm, he described how he would think and act and you look at it later and you go, oh yeah, that's, that's what's going on. Um, by the time Hubbard was in a position where he had literal children working for him 24-7, he had these little messengers who would deliver messages for him on the boat. He was on a boat. He'd set up the Sea Org. It was out in the ocean. It was sailing around in the um, uh, Mediterranean an area, right, off of the coasts of uh, Spain, France, uh, Greece. You know, the, that area of the world is where they would sail around. And he had children, the, the ch- children of the crew of the Scientologists that were working for him. He put them to work and he had them be his messengers. And these were kids who were, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old. Uh, those children have since grown up and have told their stories. They've gotten out of Scientology, have talked frankly and deeply about their experiences working for Hubbard. Um, no sexual abuse. Mm. None. None whatsoever. It appears at that point that he was rather asexual. He went from this kind of sex dog, unloyal, you know, kind of a dick husband, dick father, you know, kind of guy to asexual. He just he just wasn't interested in sex at all at a certain point. He just wasn't doing anything like that. And this is at the point, you know, by the time we get to the late 1960s and 70s, Hubbard's approaching his 50s and 60s. He was born in 1911. Mm. And so his body was starting to break down and he had, you know, a stroke and he had some other things happen to him in the seventies. So it's not that I'm saying that Hubbard was morally incapable of child abuse or assault. We just don't have any evidence that he ever did it. There's no account for it. No, none whatsoever. Mm. Right. There is documented. Everything I've said here in this answer is documented from his ex-wives from people who knew him, from his own kids. They've written about this. They've spoken publicly about it. So that's how I can talk about this stuff and feel that I know what I'm talking about. But when it comes to, you know, sexual abuse, we, we just don't have it. It's not there. Now, 
sexual abuse and child sexual abuse has happened inside the Church of Scientology. It's happened many times. Some of them are known about, some of them are not. Um, This is actively covered up by the Church of Scientology in the exact same way the Catholics covered up their bullshit. Same, same. And the Danny Masterson trial actually exposed some of the ways and means that they go about doing that because they tried to hush up Danny Masterson's victims as well. And they were not children, but the same drill, you know, the same actions were in force. There's an entire story about how there was a Scientologist uh, who, this is on Tony Ortega's blog, you can look this up. There was a um, uh, child abuser who was himself a minor. I think he was 17 years old at the time. And he was um, the son of of a woman who was a Scientologist who ran a daycare center. And it came up that he'd been touching the kids. And Scientology acted with vigor to get those women, to get the mothers of those, the parents of those kids who were sexually assaulted by this teenage boy. To be quiet. To be quiet about it, right? To not go to the police and and not let the police press charges. And they got away with it. They got away with it. So that's the kind of organization that L. Ron Hubbard set up. So while I will sit here and I will tell you factually, there's no evidence that he himself did those things. His organization has covered up individuals in the church who do. And that's pretty disgusting. Mm. Right. So, um, so this, so the organization of Scientology definitely has blood on its hands when it comes to covering up full-blown rape, full-blown statutory rape, and child sexual abuse. Well, the the first thing I'll say is, um, I'll I'll, I'll touch on both. The first thing I'll say is um, the whole thing with uh, like the wife beating, incredibly wrong. Um, However, in the time of like the 40s and 50s, it was so common, man. It was so, it was so common. Like uh, there was there was literally a TV show. Oh, it was an American TV show. Um, what was that guy where he'd say, you know, boom, straight to the moon, you know? Oh, oh the honeymooners. Honeymooners, yes, thank you. Like, there was yeah, literally yeah. a TV show where a guy was threatening to beat his wife and it was comedy, right? So, it, look, I'm not trying to defend the guy like you, but for its time, it was kind of just normal i don't want to say that but it just it is what it is like what 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 do i want to say here um no i totally get it i'll tell you what though i'll add uh i'll add another uh log on the fire here when it comes to roasting hubbard because he wrote extensively unusually extensively in the book dianetics which is the first book he published in about that that started this whole thing this was 1950 in that book, he ex- he describes in some detail this rampant problem with attempted abortions using uh-huh. like needles and things like that, and 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 like pressing on the mom's stomach or punching the mom what? and stuff like this, and 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 premeditated attempts to induce an abortion. Jesus Christ! Hubbard describes this this activity in some degree of detail, and he goes over it a few times in Dianetics, as though when you read the book, you you come away thinking 
there's some plague of attempted abortions going on in the world right now. He decries this. He says it's not a good thing to do to attempt to abort a baby because if you fail, you're going to, you know, the baby's going to have psychic damage from that, psychological damage from that. And it's going to manifest later in their life. That was the point that he was trying to make in writing about this. But how it comes across and how and knowing what you know about Hubbard after you get the hell out of there and hearing the stories of how his wives were abused from them, you get the idea Hubbard had very particular ways he might have been going about abusing his wives, and that could have been one of them, right? Is he had kids with these women, um, but how many times did he get them pregnant versus how many times did they have kids? There's something there, and um, that's disturbing, to say the least. Yeah, that's that's really that's dark disturbing. stuff. That's, that's dark. really dark stuff, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't usually go there, but since it kind of came up, mm. um, yeah. The other thing I was going to say before was um, <clears throat> the whole the whole covering up thing, and it's not mm-hmm. just the Scientologist thing. Look, the, the, the Catholic Church do it, too. It's... It infuriates me so much that when a Catholic priest does something towards a child and then all they do is they go to the Vatican, they stay there for a bit and then they, they get away with it and then yep. it's, ne- it's never brought up again. And yep. now this whole Scientology thing where someone will get done for rape allegations or some sort of sexual misconduct or violence, it'll get brought up on the news for maybe a day or two maybe maybe a week but then it's just completely forgotten about and then no one says anything again and that infuriates me so much it it, it really does and it's never pointed at them you know what i mean it's never like down the line when they get when their name gets brought up it's never brought up like hey you are the guys that covered this up well yeah that's true that's very very true we have a societal problem with this um here in these states, we have a First Amendment problem with this as well. Um, but that's a difficult, that's that's a very, very difficult uh, road to go down. Um, all I can say is I agree. You know, these, these, these are, um, they get, it's awful. It's just awful. There's no other word for it. Now, did you ever go to the museum in California? The museum? Yeah. So I've heard that, Scientology have an anti-psychological museum. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The Industry of Death Museum. Yeah. Okay. So not only did I, not only have I been there, I interviewed the guy who designed it because <laughs> wow. he he's out. He got out of Scientology a couple of years ago. Uh, his name is Mitch Brisker, and you can check out his channel where he, where we, and mine where we talk about this. Um, this What's industry, his name? Mitch, Mitch Brisker? Mitch, Brisker. Yeah, I'll he's a great look him up. You should look him up. He, he'd, he'd be, I, I'm sure he'd be happy to talk to you about it. Um, the Industry of Death Museum is Scientology's ultimate uh, statement on how they feel about psychiatry, which is that they feel very, 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 very strongly against it. They want psychiatry destroyed. They want it gone. And I don't mean like, they want to salt the earth. Like they want it gone with no possibility of ever coming back. That's how strongly they feel about the evils of psychiatry. And I am not going to defend psychiatry's past or even some of its present actions. Psychiatrists can be awful people and they can do awful things. 
just like any other human being or profession that doesn't quite have its legs under it yet. And psychology and psychiatry are very, very young sciences. And I use air quotes because these are very loosey-goosey subjects. I know a lot about psychology at this point. Mm. And there's a lot of loosey-goosiness in social science. One of the key reasons for that, for people who get all up in arms about it, is take a look for just a second at the number of variables you're dealing with when you're talking about a human being and their behavior. They're endless. The number of things that influence our behavior, it's a laundry list that would go on. You know, I could write it in a little microscopic print and roll the paper down my hallway. You know what I mean? It's like there's a lot of stuff going on with us. Mm. And it's not as easy as people seem to think it is to take people apart and figure them out. Mm-hmm. Now, that all being said, there's also all the fa- false avenues and false things that we get on a roll about and think we're, you know, all that and a slice of bread. And then we find out, oh, no, that wasn't actually true. Well, that's science and that's the process of discovery. It's slow. It's ponderous. It's it's subject to all the frailties of human thinking that we all run into. So in other words, it's complicated. Scientology makes it out that psychiatry is very, very black. You lose all that nuance I was just trying to sort of lay down right? And they go, nope, it's evil, and it must be destroyed. And that's the end of the story. Was and this that's Ron Hubbard's idea? Yes, this is this is all straight from Hubbard. And this wouldn't be happening if it wasn't. And in 1969, the Church of Scientology established a front group as a, a formal setup corporation, which is manned by and run by and operated by exclusively Scientologists, but purports to be a citizen's um, what's the word? Um, boots on the ground, you know, kind of activity. It's yep. like a, um, it's like you know, we 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 as citizens, grassroots. It's like a, they purport it to be like a grassroots movement. It's not. Yep. It's a Scientology operation, and the goal of the Citizens Commission for Human Rights. That's what it's called, CCHR. This was set up in 1969, and the one and only goal they have is destroy psychiatry, period. Leave no prisoners, nothing, right? It's all or nothing for them. And so that industry of death museum was put together to show and highlight to people every single rotten, horrible, awful thing that psychiatry's ever done in its history. We're going to put it all on display here, and we're going to show you what an invalid bullshit science this is and how they don't have a scientific bone in their body And it's all just sadism and masochism. That's what psychiatry really is, according to Scientology, is it's just a bunch of psychopaths wetting their sadistic appetites on their patients. And that's not true. But that's what what Scientology thinks. And so Scientologists take that all-or-nothing approach to psychiatry. Now, the reason I brought up Aaron Hubbard before, if this was his idea, is because now he was alive or prospering Scientology during a time where psych was very, okay, we're doing lobotomies. We were, mm-hmm. you know, even lobotomizing people for very simple things. Um, even locking people in asylums for PTSD, even. I think it yep. was, I think we thought PTSD, I think the term was shell shock 
after right. after I think that was during the World War One, World War Two times, and we yep. just thought these shell shock people were just crazy, insane. Now we understand it as post traumatic stress disorder, and now I think we caught we may have coined that in the I want to say seventies. I think it was not too long after the Vietnam War. Not too sure. Don't quote me on that one. Um, mm-hmm. But sure, if you go down any science history, things get real shady. There's mm-hmm. a reason. It, it, it's just what. It's just it kind of it's kind of what has to happen. I mean, things have to get awful before they get good. Um, well, well, exa- let me and let me let me clarify even more because you're exactly right. And let me add to that by saying. We don't invalidate modern surgery or modern medical science because at one point in the past, scientists or doctors had it in their head that it was the four humors that were the problem with everybody, Mm. right? That it was bile. You had an excess of bile and that's your problem, right? That was one of the four humors or saliva or blood or whatever the other fourth one was right and we just need to manage the balance of these of these four humors and you'll be well again this was this was legit medical practice for a period of years hundreds of years ago we don't go to that and then go well because they got it wrong there everybody's still getting it wrong now but that Scientology's logic applied to psychiatry is they will take the 1950s view of psychiatry, which was really bad, and they'll make it out that that's the current situation with psychiatry, and it's not really the same. Psychiatry has changed. Mm. Scientology has not changed. I mean, you could take any religion at any point in time in history and see how absolutely brutally violent it was to anyone who would want to step towards it. That's right. So it's, and to me, it's kind of uh, hypocritical for Scientology to try and come at people or anything like this, where they're covering up things like rape allegations and violence. And you got it. It, it, It goes beyond. There's a certain point where it goes beyond hypocrisy and it's just evil. And I don't, I, I don't go to those words very often, right? Good, evil, right? Because they're so subjective. But I mean, let's, that's Scientology. They are, they are an evil organization, right? They manipulate and harm people, hmm. and they pretend they don't. They pretend they're on some ethical high horse where they're the most ethical people on the planet, and yet they cover up rape and child sexual assault. We know this. We're not even like wondering about it. There have been so many people who have come forward. So what other word do you have for it? You know, that's, that's the best one I can come up with. Yeah. I, I don't have any other word for it. Well, yeah. Hey, Chris, look, it was, um, it was really good talking to you, man. Um, yeah. I, I loved having you on Hey, look, but before we go, is there any social media or anything you'd like to plug before we go? Your oh, book, your book, definitely. Of course. My book. <laughs> yeah, I, I to yeah, you can, If you want to, if you really want to, okay, here's what I say. If you really want to understand Scientology, if you're very curious about it, if, if some of what I've said has intrigued you or you find this interesting, you want to understand. The, take more, the personality test. No. <laughs> yeah, don't go through that. Um, you can get my book. Okay, this is not my memoir. I wrote this book to analyze and break down Scientology for people. So it's an actual breakdown of the subject. You want to know who L. Ron Hubbard is? You want to know how they got tax exemption? You want to know how they strong arm the IRS? 
That's all in here. All the basics of it, all that OT stuff, all the levels and all the Xenu stuff, there's a lot more than that. Xenu is just one tiny little part of the picture. Mm. So all of that is broken down in my book, right? So you can check that out. It's an audiobook or an ebook or a printed book. And if you really want to understand Scientology, I recommend you read my book and you read a book by a guy named John Atack called A Piece of Blue Sky, or Let's Sell These People a Piece of Blue Sky. That's the actual long title of it. Does your book That's have anything on the, does your book have anything on uh, Miscavige? The... Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, I go into all of it. And the organizational structure of Scientology and how Miscavige mm. has usurped it and taken control, how it all went down. It's all in there. Because her, so, be, her being missing, that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we all know where Shelly is. She's not missing. It's just uh, she's not a public figure. She's not coming out in the public. And she's in a location where she is very ensconced. Hidden, pretty much. Yes. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Out of public eye. Hey, Chris, look, I, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. That means a lot to okay. me. And again, before we go, do you have any social media that you would like to plug? Oh, yeah, yeah. Just find me on YouTube, uh, Chris Shelton, MSC. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, TikTok, all under Chris Shelton, MSC for my degree for Master of Science in Psychology, of course, control. So that's what I put out there. Cool. Chris, thank you so much for coming on. And it was lovely talking to you. And I'm going to keep up with everything you're doing, Scientology. <laughs> you bet. No problem. Thank you. Bye-bye.